What are you doing? I'm about to achieve the dream of human-powered flight. After today, the name Jessica Da Vinci will be engraved on the palace wall of history. My whole life, all Daddy cared about was my big brother Leonardo. Leonardo is a painter and an architect and a botanist and a mathematician. Oh yeah, well can Leonardo fly? Because when you cut that rope, this huge rubber band is gonna shoot me into the sky, my wings will unfold, the springs coiled in my palms will shoot upwards and attach themselves to the moon, and I'll be the first person to fly. Now cut the rope. I think there might be some flaws in your- Just do it! Cut the rope, damn it! Make me famous! Huh? Ah! Uh-oh. Okay, what's the record for the most broken bones? I should at least get that. Or does my little brother Tommy Da Vinci hold it? I hate being a middle child. Today on the show, the impossible dream of human-powered flight becomes possible. And now he doesn't think it's worth it if you can't check one bag for free. Colin McEnroe. And believe me, you cannot check bags on these things. Uh, We are going to be talking about human-powered flight today. Uh, amazing things have happened in the realm of human-powered flight. We can't make a studio connection to Toronto right now, but see, that's not human flight. That's audio. We're having a little problem. Uh, Cameron Robertson is actually part of the team, part of the two-man team that actually did uh, eventually achieve. uh, Actually, I have to sort of back up and say one thing, which is that when you talk about human-powered flight, you're really talking about, it turns out, a lot of different things. There's flapping wing human-powered flight. Uh, there's a human-powered lift, uh, uh, helicopter-style lift. That's one of the things we'll be talking about today. So, I mean, there are there have been a lot of landmarks uh, or watersheds or whatever you want to call them in the realm of, of human-powered flight. We're going to be talking about one in particular today, but, but a bunch of them in general, too. So, as I say, we're trying to achieve a, a studio connection with uh, Cameron Robertson up there in Toronto. Uh, right now, we're going to talk to Ben Hine. He was the uh, 2013 chair of the AHS, that's the American Hel- Helicopter Society, I believe. Sikorsky Prize Committee, obviously. The Sikorsky story is one of the great Connecticut stories of all time. Uh, Ben's a, a senior engineer at Sikorsky. So, first of all, welcome to our show. Thank you, Colin. And tell us about the prize. What, do, what is the prize, and what, do you, what do, does one have to do to get it? Uh, so, the prize started in 1980. Um, the original uh, founding member uh, was a... AHS member called Sonny Darlington. Um, They basically were inspired by the original human-powered airplane prizes uh, known as the Kramer Prizes, which had been won by a U.S. engineer named Paul McCready uh, of Air Environment. Um, They thought, well, if airplanes can do it, uh, helicopters can do something slightly more modest, which was to fly for 60 seconds, uh, attain an altitude of about 10 feet, which is 3 meters, uh, and stay inside a, a small area. Um, a helicopter should be able to do that, although as we'll be talking about it later today, later in the show, it's also, it was also theoretically, technically impossible. Um, yeah, very so difficult. Very difficult to do. Maybe impossible, but maybe not. Uh, all right. So, um, and, and so um, uh, this, I assume, since this prize went unclaimed for what, 33 years? 33 years, yeah, that's right. Did it start as a smaller amount of money and, and then expand into a bigger? Because, I mean, what you should give somebody in 2013 <laughs> is probably more than you should have given yeah. them 33 years <laughs> before that. Well, in 1980, I think $10,000 went a long way. I was uh, actually not born yet when the prize uh, was originated, but uh, they quickly raised it to $20,000, which might have been able to buy you a small house. <laughs> um, but these guys won 250000 right? 
Yeah, in 2009, uh, Sikorsky, uh, the president of Sikorsky at the time, Jeff Pino, announced that uh, the prize was being increased to $250,000, which can also buy you a small house. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so why does Sikorsky care about this? In other words, there, there are you guys have already figured out all kinds of great ways to fly people around. And, and as, a, as a civilization, we've figured out all kinds of fast ways to fly people around, and we can land things on comets. Who cares if somebody you, you know, can get 10 feet up in the air? Why, why do you care? I think, uh, you know, the best way to look at it is actually from the point of view of Igor himself. Uh, he was really looking to inspire the individual and the next generation of engineers, and that's really the stake that Sikorsky itself has in that game. Um, most of us all came from undergraduates around the country and international schools, and if there weren't prizes like this to inspire uh, new engineering students, um, it would be difficult to essentially um, look for a field that uh, – really test the limits of both materials, human capabilities, and also just engineering skills, lightweight materials, uh, things to that effect. All right. I think we do have Cameron Robertson with us now. Are you there? Yes, I'm here. Oh, good. That's from this from CBC Radio in Toronto. We now have achieved uh, communications with Cameron Robertson. So um, maybe you can quickly describe to us, first of all, the, for, for I know your partner, um, Todd Reichert had, had worked on something called the Snowbird, right? That was before you got involved with him? Uh, no, actually. So Todd and I were the two first members of that project and were the two principals who ended up seeing it through from the very early conceptualization to the final flight of that aircraft. So Todd was the pilot, but we had actually both worked on that for about three and a half years, and, and, that, and that was our first experience. And that was a very different kind of project, right? That was a flapping wing aircraft? Yeah, absolutely. So our our lab had had experience in flapping wing flight, but it was all either small scale or engine powered ornithopters. And so in our undergraduate uh, work, Todd and I uh, realized that this is an ancient aeronautical dream. You know, our earliest sketches from Da Vinci are effectively human powered ornithopters, but it had fallen by the wayside and hadn't been achieved as of even the early 2000s. So this was kind of the last of the aviation firsts, so to speak. Um, and, and, you know, it's, um, in fact, Ben Hine, uh, maybe even before you joined us, was mentioning the, the Creamer Prize. And I, I know that was w one of those Creamer Prizes was won in 1977 by something called the Gossamer Condor Aircraft. And I know you're quite a student of the history of all this, and these guys are all kind of uh, heroes to you. But so what did, what did the Gossamer Condor not do that the Snowbird did? How were they, how were they different? So the Condor, the Albatross, which was their follow-on airplane, the MIT's Daedalus, these were all propeller-driven aircraft. Uh -huh. So they were fixed wings with a single propeller, and it's, it's quite easy to translate the pedaling motion to the circular motion of a propeller and getting flapping wing flight to work for a number of reasons, mechanical as well as efficiency-based, is, is much more difficult. So it was a completely different archetype of aircraft from those ones. So and it's, it's amazing. I mean, when you really think about that, I mean, even to somebody like me, I have no engineering background. I don't know anything, but I can understand how a flapping wing thing would be very, very hard to do. It's an unbelievable accomplishment. Why you had to name it after an Anne Murray song, I, I guess only a Canadian would understand. Um, but um, so you went from there to, to what uh, I've been talking uh, about earlier to Ben Hine, uh, to, to this notion of, of basically doing a human-powered helicopter, something that would rise into the air for three meters, uh, up to, to a height of three meters. Ben Hine, what, what is that? That's a little bit more than 10 feet? Yeah, it's a little less than 10 feet, 9.8 feet. Oh, 9.8 feet. It had to stay there for a minute, right? Uh, it doesn't have to stay there. It uh, basically has to gain the 
nine foot out, nine point eight foot altitude or three meters, uh, momentarily, but it has to stay aloft for sixty seconds. And, and it, does it have to land in an orderly fashion too? I mean, uh, yeah, no parts of the aircraft could come off, and it had to stay inside a ten by ten meter box. So, uh, Cameron Robertson, th- this was that this was the next challenge you undertook, and. And I, I don't know if there's any way to describe how incredibly difficult this was going to be, but but maybe first of all, you can in, begin by saying, why do you want to do this? Why 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 try something like this? So it was partially that we'd been so thrilled by our experience with a snowbird. It's really fun to work on human-powered aircraft. It's a great engineering problem that invites creativity, uh, a lot of hands-on pursuit of perfection, this kind of thing. And uh, so Todd and I had uh, parted ways for a few years after the snowbird. He was finishing his PhD and I was working on unmanned aircraft. And uh, we actually were watching the live feed of one of the other competitors testing one summer and uh, said, man, that looks cool and we should get back into this. And, oh, there is uh, a somewhat lucrative prize such that it's at least a break-even proposition. Uh, Let's go for it. This is, I mean, I don't want to over-dramatize it, but it seems to me, based on the reading that I, I've done about this so far, this is kind of an underdog story, isn't it? I mean, you guys aren't really backed by anybody, you know, with tons of money. You're not part of a big, huge research institution. or I mean, you're, 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 you're engineers, but I mean, I don't know. It didn't seem like you had a whole lot of, um, of backing or the, you know, the, maybe even backing compared to some of the other teams that were trying to do this. So at the time, we kind of felt that it was somewhat of an underdog. The University of Maryland, who was the other primary competitor at the time, and really a lot of people thought the only competitor, uh, they're a very well-esteemed, internationally recognized research institution in rotorcraft. Uh, they'd been working since about 2008 on this project when we got it, got started in uh, very late 2011. So they had a bit of a head start. But but absolutely, I think that we had some advantages, such as you know we had a very small but motivated team. It was very easy for everybody to keep on the same page, dedicated, focused. Uh, but also having built this human-powered flapping airplane for three and a half years, we had a lot of experience and we'd been around the block Uh, at least once. And the fundamental difference in our approaches was I think Maryland was taking their incredible wealth of knowledge from conventional helicopters and trying to scale that down for human-powered aircraft. And that is actually, I think, a little bit more difficult a place to start from compared to us, where we started with the human-powered aircraft experience, and we just had to slightly change that from a fixed-wing airplane to an airplane whose wings happened to be rotating. Uh, So in a lot of ways, it was actually a fairly straightforward transition for us, and we were able to do very well from that starting point. Um, Ben Hine, as these kinds of things are unfolding, and the Gamera Project's unfolding at University of Maryland, these guys are working in Toronto, um, is this something people talk about? Do other engineers at Sikorsky talk about it, about whether it's it's possible? Do they watch the videos uh, of people trying to do this? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I would say that it was really motivating for the employees at Sikorsky. I have a lot of friends in the rotorcraft community as well. Ironically, I actually went to University of Maryland. Um, and people were really, uh, I think, excited by the proposition of these human-powered flights. Uh, and I think, Todd, you could, or Cameron, you could speak to this. Uh, you guys had probably more than a million hits on some of your YouTube videos. Is that true? Uh, yeah, I think there were 4 million people at last check who had watched the helicopter video. And certainly a lot of people who have, one, one gentleman in particular who's based in uh, the, uh, Pennsylvania right now had, had said to me, I've been watching this competition for the 33 years since its inception, and I am so glad that somebody was able to pull it off. 
Um, speaking of helicopter history, we have an interesting call. This just came in here. I should mention our phone lines are open here in the afternoon. We're live in the afternoon, 860-275-7266, 860-275-7266. You may also tweet us at WNPR, Colin. Greg Hill is ready to tweet back at you. Uh, so, Sa- Sandra from Southbury, you're on the line. Hi. <clears throat> this is an interesting program for me. My husband was one of the design engineers for the Black Hawk, and uh, so he had some of the patents for it, and uh, have a lot of books around here about the Mr. Uh, Sikorsky, but uh, my, also my brother was one of the original people on the space program, so he was always fascinated with, with flight and uh, all these kind of things you're talking about today, so I think it's interesting to see that this is something that little boys draw their first uh, little pictures about, you know, rockets and flying uh, or having that Superman dream that you're flying yourself along. <laughs> so just uh, thank you for having such a good program. Well, thank you for calling in. And, and Cameron Robertson, I watched the uh, t- uh, TED Youth Talk that you and your uh, partner gave. And it's sort of something that you talk about, too, that that this notion of this dream and this impossible, impossible seeming dream is a big part of what you're doing, right? You guys are not just tinkerers. There's there's some sense that there's a vision behind it all. Yeah, absolutely. We've tried to pick projects that have uh, an air of impossibility about them, partially because, you know, that classic twist is very exciting. Oh, people thought this would never happen. It turns out it's possible. But I think uh, each of the the projects that we've taken on between the Snowbird, the Atlas helicopter, and now a bike to break the human-powered land speed record, which is currently at about 83 miles per hour, um, these are things that are on the edge of possibility. And what we've tried to do is find a way of attacking each of these problems that is largely based on ingenuity, creativity, uh, and mindset, and is not necessarily dependent on development of the next cutting-edge technology. So, you know, not necessarily cutting-edge space-age materials or the fastest supercomputers on Earth allowing this achievement. Really, you know, the power of people and the power of creativity and the motivation of the team. So um, we need to explain a little bit more about sort of the, the process by which this unfolded. So this was a, um, a contraption that you were going to be testing indoors. Uh, but one of the decisions that you made, uh, as I understand it, was to build it as big as you wanted it to be and then worry later about where indoors this huge thing was ever going to fit. So give us a sense of the size uh, of the Atlas. A- Atlas has a footprint bigger than most commercial airplanes. It's about 150 feet on the diagonal, uh, and it takes up most of a full-size soccer or NFL football field. Uh, It's absolutely enormous. And it's interesting to us starting out because from the very first simplest math required, you can tell that this has to be absolutely huge. Uh, And the trouble with a lot of the prior projects is... All right, everyone realizes pretty quick that a human-powered helicopter can't be flown outside because it won't be tolerant of winds without being far too heavy to fly. Uh, And so most people then go and say, okay, where is the nearest indoor test venue? And for a team in Japan, for a team in California, and then Maryland, it was either an indoor field house or a, a basketball court. And so we started with the first principles math and did our analysis. And so it wasn't just as big as we wanted it to be, but it was actually as big as it needed to be. 
in order to have a healthy margin on the flight requirements. And so this is why we really, I should say, we started at the beginning. We figured out what does this helicopter need to look like and then relegated the flight test venue to a logistical concern. Um, it, it just so happened, as Ben has pointed out before, we're lucky to live in a country where people want to play soccer year-round so we can find an indoor soccer field. Yeah, I want to come back to that indoor soccer field for a second, but um, Ben Hine, were people at Sikorsky surprised at, at the size of this thing? I mean, when they understood what Atlas was going to be and how big it was, uh, was that a source of surprise or was that something you would have expected? Uh, actually, I wouldn't say to the serious engineer that it was a surprise, but uh, as a company that comes from a long history of building very large helicopters, it was very exciting to see such a small team uh, build something so large and so light. Uh, if you look back at some of the early papers, even from the early 80s, uh, most serious literature surveys would say that this thing needs to be um, 50 um, or even 70 meters in diameter if it was just a single rotor itself. Um, so Cameron Robertson, uh, as you alluded to, um, this this thing started to be tested in this, it looks like sort of a multi-field indoor soccer complex in, in Toronto. And my understanding of it is you kind of had to work around the needs and schedules of amateur soccer teams, right? Yeah, so we were very lucky that during uh, the parts of the summer that we were testing and then throughout uh, our winter from January to April, uh, from about 6 in the morning till 5 at night, nobody wanted to use the field. So thankfully, we had it to ourselves. Uh, but unfortunately, at 5 o'clock, uh, the helicopter effectively turns into a pumpkin and people start streaming on field and kicking balls around. Uh, and, and the whole thing is so fragile that if a soccer ball were to hit literally any part of it, uh, it would have created you know, a day's worth of repairs for our team. So definitely it's super fragile, but we were very lucky the the soccer center was accommodating. Uh, that being said, the fact that we had to disassemble it even once meant that this helicopter the size of a commercial airplane needed to be disassembled and packed away in a tractor trailer every night. So it kind of comes apart like a piece of IKEA furniture in this, you know, mad dash circus kind of extravaganza. So it's pretty comical to watch the the setup and then the breakdown, especially in time lapse. So and, and when they make the movie of this with uh, Channing, Tate, Channing Tatum playing Cameron Robertson, I mean, they're going to have a lot of drama to work with, at least in the sense, I mean, it doesn't look that dramatic. When you see this thing ha- happen, I mean, it, it's a guy pedaling a bicycle and he, and he takes this enormous thing 10 feet up in the air and it's really cool looking. But, I mean, the drama, as I understand it, was that you guys came within an inch or two or inches of making it once or twice, and then immediately it crashed? Yeah, absolutely. So so we had many, many small failures along the way where uh, a rotor blade would dig into the grass of the field and, you know, shatter something that on the Snowbird we would have considered, you know, kind of a game-stopping failure. But we learned quickly to recover from this. And then later, uh, when we were approaching the requirements of the prize, twice we reached roughly this three-meter altitude, and the helicopter came apart entirely in midair, uh, you know, thousands of pieces all over the field. And so it was it was at times really difficult uh, to pick up from that, being so close. And And really it breaks down to, you know, at the outset, we felt that, okay, on the whole, maybe on a scale of 1 to 10, this challenge was a 9. It was nearly impossible. And then after that first crash, we said, oh, maybe this challenge is actually a 12. And so we get there, 
and we crash again and we say, oh, maybe it's like a 14. So it, it's kind of the goalpost keeps moving as you realize with each passing failure how much you didn't quite understand about the aircraft and also about the difficulty of the challenge. Um, we say the word crash, and even from a height of 10 feet or, or 3 meters or, or whatever, um, you know, I mean, that's a long way to fall while in sitting in a bicycle seat attached to this enormous piece of equipment. Uh, you, did your partner, Todd Reichert, was he okay after these crashes? <laughs> Todd has had miraculous brushes with failure for uh, in many situations. So in the bikes, he's gone down at 60 miles an hour uh, on highway. He's crashed in the Snowbird. And yes, the, the helicopter, the several times he came down, he actually ended up being just fine. Uh, it, it was kind of funny to us because... Uh, we're falling onto the field, which is lucky. He had practiced, you know, good falls, some techniques from judo. Uh, but really the worst he ever had was a bruise or a scratch, whereas the entire helicopter takes weeks to put back together. So the body heals itself, but Humpty Dumpty really needs putting back together. Uh, ben Hine, have you, I don't know if you've noticed this, but Cameron Robertson uh, frequently uses the word lucky to describe things that I, <laughs> I wouldn't really regard as being all that lucky, having to put my huge uh, ornithopter uh, in, a, in a soccer stadium and then take it apart every day at 5 o'clock. Uh, that wouldn't strike me as lucky. Um, one of the things I'm wondering is uh, now that somebody has actually won this prize, uh, what is the course you going to do? I mean, you're not going to give the prize, the prize to other people. Is, is there going to be a new prize? Are you going to set the bar in a new place? Uh, so the AHS, uh, which I'm still a part of, has a committee basically to come up with the next prize. Um, we've been bouncing around a lot of ideas. Um, what's actually very funny is that uh, the human-powered helicopter set the bar so high that it's very difficult to come up with something that has all the elements uh, that that competition did, which is the excitement, the technical difficulty, um, and then the achievability uh, you know, within a prescribed era. I think... Again, uh, we're, we're very close to releasing another prize, and you'll probably see it within the next few months. All right. Well, Ben Hine, uh, thank you so much for being part of this, this part of the conversation. Uh, now, we're going to take a little break here. When we come back, one of the things I said at the beginning of the show was, well, what these guys didn't know was that this was basically impossible. Cameron just called it a 14 on a difficulty scale that ran to 10. We're going to give you a, a, a greater sense of how at least theoretically impossible this was when we come back. We're back. We're talking about human-powered flight today uh, and the various dreams and models of human-powered flight. And it, it's the kind of thing that if you don't make a habit of keeping abreast of it, um, you might not even be aware of what has been achieved so far and what still awaits uh, being achieved. Um, and it's even sneakier when they do it in Canada. Uh, you know, it's just, you know, I mean, things happen in Canada and we don't find out about them right away. Um, so Cameron Robertson is here with us. Uh, he's the chief structural engineer at Aero Velo Incorporated. They are the guys who won the Sikorsky Prize. They're also the guys before that who um, built Snowbird, a flappable wing uh, human-powered uh, aircraft. So, uh, and they have other plans. We'll talk about their other plans, too, as we go along here today. But we also wanted to talk about the fact that from a technical standpoint, from a theoretical standpoint, 
what they were doing had been deemed impossible. Uh, joining us now is Dr. Antonio Filippone. Is it Filippone or Filipponi? Tell me how Filippone. to say it. Filippone. Hello. Filippone. Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you just fine. Um, a senior lecturer at the School of Mechanical, Aerospace, and Civil Engineering at the University of Manchester. So, um, Dr. Filippone, in, in, uh, in 2007, you effectively wrote the paper explaining to Cameron Robertson why this was never going to happen. Uh, explain, tell us what that paper said. Well, I made uh, some uh, parametric analysis to see if, uh, if uh, there were limits to actually build this uh, vehicle. And I came up with a, with a size which was uh, enormous, as Mr. Robertson says. And I thought, you know, there is no place where you can actually fly this, uh, this vehicle. And uh, looking at the power you can get out of a cyclist, I thought, you know, this is really pushing it a bit too far. And then I've been thinking about a number of things, like, for example, if you be able to catapult it upwards, then you could uh, save the energy to actually climb to the three meters that was required by the price. And I thought, you know, even this, probably that wouldn't be uh, considered uh, allowed by the price. Um, then I looked at a single rotor, two rotors, four rotors, a single cyclist, two cyclists, and so forth. And I thought, you know, we're really, really pushing it. <laughs> And so one of the so questions, when I heard that, I was absolutely amazed. Yeah. One of the things you were sort of looking at, I, I think, and I, once again, I have so little uh, acumen in this area that it's, it's sad, but um, is how many watts can a human being actually generate, right? That's one of the basic questions. In terms of propulsive power, how much can, can output can a, is a human being capable of? Isn't that one of the things that sort of made up the bedrock of your calculations? Uh, well, that was, uh, that was a bit of a guess because uh, essentially I used the data, which perhaps was a bit old. Um, you know, the duration, the duration is very important, and the sitting position is also very important. Mm -hmm. Okay, so essentially as, uh, as you change the sitting position, you have a different output from the human body. And as you go, uh, you know, longer, of course, the, the output decreases. Um, I, I was thinking, you know, perhaps by changing uh, the sitting position, uh, you could probably get a bit more out of it. But then you need experts in uh, in, in sports, and I've not been uh, talking to those experts. So, Cameron Robertson, the good news was, as I understand it, you guys didn't even know this paper existed, right? Uh, we were very lucky to have not been told that it was impossible. I think that people had said that it was going to be difficult, and in fact, uh, Paul McCready, who had won the first Kramer Prize is, is quoted as having said, there are many much more easy things to do that are worth a lot more money. So this was his reason for not pursuing this. Uh, so fortunately, we hadn't seen the paper. A lot of people had said it was impossible. Even uh, one of the chairs at the Rotorcraft Department at University of Maryland told all of his students, I forbid you from working on this project. It is impossible and a waste of time. So uh, knowing what you know now, Cameron Robertson, why, why is it possible? Why was it possible? What was, it? was there one thing that you solved or a lot of things that you solved? I think it was a lot of things. I think uh, the unconstrained idea of build it as large as it needs to be was critical. Uh, we looked for simplification everywhere that we could in terms of the mechanical complexity, but also in terms of using techniques that we were familiar with that had been uh, you know, well proven out in human-powered aircraft construction. And then in addition to that, it took, you know, the very focused and dedicated team to be able to make all of the changes necessary to be able to work long, you know, 12-hour days, stressful, on the field, 
to do these test flights and then also to be able to recover uh, from these huge, enormous failures. So it, there's no, say, one enabling piece of technology. It's kind of those four aspects. And Dr. Filippone, when you started to see what they were doing there, or maybe when you watched the video of what they did eventually accomplish, did you have kind of a eureka moment or an aha moment? Like, oh, that that's how they did it. Uh, no, no, really, because uh, effectively there are a number of unknowns that I just uh, left as a second guess. Mm-hmm. So the difference between me and, and uh, Mr. Robertson and his team was that he tried very hard and looked at every every single detail. He didn't leave uh, a stone uh, unturned. I, I made a guess of some of the parameters, and I thought that was a, would have been impossible. Again, I think that by using, uh, by using uh, more accurate data on, uh, on the structures, uh, of course, you can go a bit farther by using uh, more accurate data on the cyclist power. Also, you can go a bit farther. But I think, you know, it's a question of integration between many small pieces. And uh, I think ultimately, you know, uh, the prize the prize was won. But, you know, it's not a normal, a normal conventional aircraft we're talking about here. We said before, you know, you need an, a large indoor avenue to get this uh, this thing uh, uh, set up and in fact i have in front of me the size of the atlas and this compared to the boeing 737 i mean it's uh, it's just about uh, a bit longer than the boeing 737 nose to tail and that would be the same in the other direction does it as, you as know, a, it's really yeah. really big big thing yes as a scientist does it make you happy when something like this happens when something that really seemed so elusive so impossible um, I mean, obviously, you're the guy who wrote on the impos- uh, on the possibility of human-powered vertical flight. But um, does it make you happy when a barrier like this is broken? Well, you know, I mean, it's history of science to be proved right, and uh, occasionally, after a couple of hundred years or even earlier, be being proved uh, wrong. <laughs> In this case, it happened a few years uh, uh, earlier to be proved, uh, you know, that it isn't quite right what I what I was thinking. But I'm quite happy. You know, I'm, I'm proud to see that the, the, the record has been broken. This is the way we do we do progress. You know, it, there's nothing dogmatic in here, because if it was something dogmatic, we'd make no progress. Um, Cameron Robertson, um, obviously, people are not going to be taking rides in this particular machine. Do you feel as though what you did do, the ways in which you broke through, I mean, obviously, there's in terms of just inspiration, human inspiration and, and, and challenge, there's an enormous I lesson think, here. I think I've, I've inspired actually many people because, uh, um, okay, Cameron Robertson didn't know about my paper, but the, the, the team in Maryland, they knew my paper. They were working with my paper, and I was there. Yeah. Oh, you were at Maryland, yeah. Yeah, I was there. And uh, they knew the paper. They wanted to talk to me. But at the same time, they ignored my paper. They went ahead anyway. Yeah. So Cameron, let me ask Cameron Robertson, do you see from the work that you did on Atlas, are there applications, are there ways in which some of the solutions that you came up with will, in fact, manifest themselves there uh, in, in the world outside the soccer uh, practice fields? Uh, it's it's hard to say exactly. We haven't seen any of them yet, but we've been working on uh, our design program, the, the code that we used for the aerodynamic and structural analysis of Atlas, working into an open source optimization project that NASA uh, is running to try to bring that kind of uh, very high efficiency concurrent design approach to mainstream commercial aircraft uh, and rotorcraft uh, development. Uh, I'm not sure whether we'll see 
people commuting in human-powered helicopters to work. I'm almost certain that's not going to be the case. Uh, but Google, for example, right now is working on a project to put large uh, aerial wind turbines up like a kite in the upper atmosphere, connected via cord to the ground. And the kinds of structures, the scales that they need to look at for that kind of thing to work are very similar uh, to our helicopter. So, you know, the team there hasn't come and said, can we utilize aspects of your design? But I think that's very much the same kind of design approach that will need to be applied there as here. All right. We're going to, uh, first of all, thank Dr. Antonio Filippone very much, senior lecturer at the School of Mechanical Aerospace and Civil Engineering at the University of Manchester. Uh, We're going to take a break. We're going to come back. We'll have more of Cameron Robertson. We want to talk about their future projects and also kind of what you learn by setting the bar really, really high. To that land of gentle breezes where the peaceful waters flow. Spread your tiny wings and fly away. And take the snow back with you where it came from on that day. What I love forever is untrue. And if I could, you know that I would fly away with you. I'm looking around because I have to figure out who to thank because Wolfie usually does this right now. But So I do want to thank uh, Lydia Brown, obviously, is the person who conceived. Not obviously. She's the person who conceived this show and, and designed it. Uh, she was the Cameron Robertson of this show. She got it off the ground. Uh, Bitsy Kaplan's on the board today. I can't see who's handling phones right now, uh, but somebody will tell me in just a second. Greg Hill uh, tweets for us and appeared in, in the introduction today. Uh, and uh, let's see. And tomorrow on the show, it's The Nose. It's our weekly cultural roundtable. Uh, you'll hear more about that in the promos as we go along. So, uh, oh, Julia Pistel is on the phones today. I couldn't see her in there. All right. So um, those are all the thank yous. Thank you to everybody else that I didn't thank, too. Um, So Cameron Robertson is still with us. Um, He was a part of this two-man team uh, that solved this incredible problem, Uh, won a prize that had been sitting on the table for 33 years. Others had tried and failed. This was a human-powered helicopter, something that rose three meters in the air, uh, stayed up there a minute, uh, came back down in an orderly fashion. Uh, He was the chief structural engineer on that uh, project. You know, before we get into some of the larger lessons, uh, Cameron, one of the things that we haven't talked about is uh, I think people are listening to this and thinking, well, I know there's probably all these, you know, incredibly up-to-date space age uh, materials that you you make something like this out of. You you used a lot of pretty familiar materials, right? Balsa and styrofoam and stuff like that? Yeah, we used a lot of things that could easily be worked by hand. So we actually had a team of uh, 10 undergraduate engineering students that Todd and I were a part of. And all of us hadn't spent time, say, in industry working on ultra-cutting-edge stuff. So we really had to lean on our own experience from the previous project and rely on things that we all could do. Uh, And in fact, the whole helicopter, like the, the Snowbird, the ornithopter before it, had been built in a barn in the middle of nowhere north of Toronto on an airfield that uh, there was a glider club that had the incredible vision to have us there. And so all of this stuff was built in a barn. It was fairly low tech. And really, uh, the materials were insulating foam, the kind of thing you might have in your house, balsa wood that you might make a small toy airplane out of, plastic film that was very similar to saran wrap. This is mylar um, and, and in addition, even the most uh, intense parts of the structure, carbon fiber, uh, we actually were using materials very similar to what had been around since 1979 when the Gossamer Albatross had won the second Kramer Prize. So many of the techniques were actually 
quite old, again, tested and true, but really the key aspect was that we were familiar with them and we could really make the airplane out of these things. So you sort of geeked out on the history of all this. On the other hand, my sense is you're, you weren't really sort of insiders in terms of helicopter design or anything like that. Do you think that helps? I mean, you think about just that whole Thomas Kuhn notion of the structure of scientific knowledge, that it tends to plateau while everybody chases the same paradigm. Everybody, everybody works pretty much the same way, and then there's this huge upshift at some point. You guys, I, I sense that you're a, you were a little bit outsiders, which maybe allowed you to think about the problem differently from the way everybody else was thinking about it. Is that fair? Uh, I, I think that is fair. One of the gentlemen at uh, NASA had said to me at one point that, you know, they were so thrilled that somebody looked at this who had a beginner's mind. And I think that that kind of mindset, this outsider view, a novel, fresh take, uh, you're not locked into conservative ways of thinking about the same problem. And it makes it very easy for us to kind of go in a non-emotional way, ticking down the list of all the things that you know, might be of interest to helicopter designers, but aren't of interest to solving this particular problem. And if you have that kind of non-attached view, not stuck in paradigms, absolutely it's easier to break free. Uh, I've been kind of uh, affectionately teasing you about Canada, but do you think it helps to be Canadian? Uh, I'm not sure if it does. I'm actually a dual citizen. Um, it's it's a little bit tougher to find some of these things up here because actually carbon fiber in particular uh, is export controlled and there's nobody who makes it in Canada. So that might be one impediment. But uh, besides that, you know, we had vast, nice uh, open spaces. Uh, and again, the indoor soccer field was maybe the biggest thing we had going for us. So I would say on on the... On the average, we kind of had no more or less advantages than anybody else. I was thinking more in terms of your naturally gritty character and your uh, comfort with an underdog status. Uh, but that might be something that somebody else would have to have insight into. Uh, I want to talk about some of the things that you've said since then, which I, which I find really interesting. Things about, uh, we'll talk in a second about the, um, the latest projects. But before we do that, I thought one of the most interesting things that I read that you said was that s there's something about setting the 1 to 10 bar at 14 that's useful. And I think one of the um, examples you brought up was fuel efficiency. You feel as though the, the, the targets for, fuel, for automotive fuel efficiency aren't exciting enough. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I think that all new technology... Uh, a lot of people ask us, why do we pursue the impossible? What is the point of this? And I think just like Dr. Filippone had mentioned, uh, or Filippone, uh, you inspire people by setting the bar at impossible because we can all do the things that we already know how to do. But it's the things that we don't know how to do or don't feel like we can yet do that are, by definition, the next developments. And so by setting impossible goals, by taking on those challenges, that's when you really have to step outside the paradigm and push the boundaries of science, technology, engineering, and really creative design. And so at that leading edge of impossible is where progress happens. So in other words, what you're saying is something like fuel efficiency standards, they should be set at what? At very high. I think that, you know, if we look at what's capable, uh, I mean, let, let's let's look at our bikes in particular because we've done the math. Uh, we do these aerodynamically streamlined, enclosed, human-powered vehicles. And at the speeds that we've been able to reach and that many other people have been able to reach, at about 60 miles per hour, they have a fuel efficiency of something like 1,600 miles per gallon, which is several hundred times more than the average fleet fuel economy in the U.S., 
Now, the way that we achieve that is not by taking an existing car and making it more and more efficient. We've really pushed back hard on the preconceived notions of what a car is and what it means uh, to be a car. So it's big and it's heavy. It's got, uh, you know, four wheels that's made of steel. All these kinds of things we've just completely thrown away. Uh, and that's what allows us to really make a paradigm-shifting gain. Uh, the question then becomes, when you do something that's impossible or when you really push the gain in one area, like our bikes with, say, fuel economy, uh, what would it take to have the same kind of practicality as a car? And that's another big question about infrastructure and useful, uh, useful say, carrying capacity. But at least you can show that one area where we think, yeah, it's really hard for, say, the big three to push on fuel economy. Well, there are a lot of great ways to make leaps and strides in that area. So uh, we should talk a little bit about some of these projects. You alluded to the, the land speed record for bicycles. Maybe you can tell us a little bit more about that. So every year, the World Human Powered Speed Challenge is held in Battle Mountain, Nevada, and people are getting there from all over the world, the Netherlands, Russia, Australia, the U.S., and Canada, to try to break the human-powered land speed record, which is currently at 83.8 miles per hour on human power alone. So in the middle of the desert is this long, straight, flat stretch of highway, and everybody has these very aerodynamically refined bicycles and everyone is trying to push the limits of human capability um and and so yeah give us a sense so that the uh i used to know something about this because i used to i guess i still do write for a bicycling magazine is it 80, 84 miles an hour somewhere in there is that what the record is yep so it's 83.8 right now and we're going back in september with a lot of other teams and we all hope to break it absolutely and and is there a key to breaking it? Is there, I mean, is it, once again, is there one problem you're trying to solve or a set of problems you're trying to solve? Uh, I think we've looked back historically, and there have been several stages of it going in leaps and bounds. So one, when people moved to a higher altitude test track, they were able to go faster. F nicer rolling resistance tires were a big thing, people going to fully enclosed fairings. And so now I think we have a number of teams, I think, uh, pushing aerodynamics most of all. Uh, our, our understanding of land vehicle aerodynamics and how to reduce the drag, how to better fit the rider. So it's, it's largely transitioned to a, a, an aerodynamic problem. Uh, but we are still pursuing gains in lightweighting the vehicle, mechanical efficiency, uh, lower rolling resistance tires. So there, there's actually a, a number of avenues of attack that we're pursuing. Um, one of the other um, uh, markers that's out there, unless uh, there's some news I haven't caught up with, um, but going back to that Kramer Prize, uh, the Kramer Prize, uh, which is the one that preceded the Sikorsky Prize, uh, it, it did have a, a, a bunch of different manifestations, and uh, some of those manifestations have now been achieved. But one of them is the so-called the, the marathon. Uh, explain what that is, because I know that's something that you and your partner have also talked about tackling. So the marathon prize is to fly a marathon in under an hour. So this is 42 kilometers or 26 miles. Uh, you can have as big an airplane as you want. You can fly however you like. It needs to be flown around a closed course. It, it, it's shaped like an oval. Uh, but it's going to be the fastest human-powered aircraft that has ever sustained flight for that long. Uh, and certainly a different challenge than anyone has tackled before. Um and, and my my understanding of it is that um, when people have tried to do this before, um, uh, they've only stayed up in the air for two minutes or something like that. 
Yeah, so the the current fastest human-powered aircraft was called the Muscular 2, and it was made in Germany uh, back in the 80s, and it was very fast. I think they had periods where they had documented 46 to 50 kilometers per hour, whereas, again, 42 kilometers would be required for the one hour. But as you say, they only were able to fly for about two minutes, and it's just because going faster... For aircraft takes a, a huge amount of power. Basically, power goes with something like the third power uh, of velocity. So it's quite a challenge to go even just a little bit faster. Um, uh, so I know you're in the thick of the bicycle project right now, but but that marathon thing, that's something you guys really want to try to do, right? Uh, absolutely. It is the next human-powered aircraft project that we're looking to tackle. We've been working with our undergraduate student team this year that we had working on the bike as a design exercise for them. Uh, but also we're looking uh, at the preliminary design of this aircraft with a number of undergraduate project teams right now. And uh, it's a really interesting, exciting problem. And again, it looks at first hash to be impossible. But like the helicopter very quickly as soon as you start to say, okay, let's not assume that it looks like this. And let's assume that you can do things a little bit differently from the aspect of controls or that we can do a little bit better than we've done before in aerodynamics, and it becomes very possible. Uh, let's grab a quick uh, call from Bob in Silvers, New York. Hi, Bob. You're on the air. Hi. Thanks very much. I was wondering on the helicopter if you uh, drive the rotors directly from the uh, pedals, I assume it uses pedals, uh, or can you store energy in, like, in a kinetic wheel or with a uh, uh, rubber band, so to speak? So energy storage was actually forbidden by the rules of the competition. And so the way that we drive it is we have spooled up string, a very thin line, around the hubs of the helicopter rotors. And we take that string to the pedals where we have spools uh, on the bicycle cranks. And as the pilot pedals, it winds the string up on those spools and it unwinds them from the rotors. So kind of like a reel-to-reel tape effectively. And so that's how they're driven. Um, Are there other things in the offing out there? I mean, we talked about the bike. We talked about the marathon. Is there something else that you're you're working on as well or that you have your sights on somewhere down the line? Uh, those are the two most exciting things to us. There are a lot of human-powered helicopter, uh, sorry, not helicopter, human-powered um, submarine, uh, a lot of international human-powered aircraft competitions. It's a very popular student competition in Japan and Korea, for example. Uh, there is a competition in the States uh, and actually also one in India every year called the Human-Powered Vehicle Challenge, which is to build a more practical utilitarian bicycle that could work in both an urban and, a, say, a suburban environment uh, that really looks to replacing cars. And so this is neat for pushing uh, the much more practical side of the technology. Uh, to me, there's nothing as exciting, though, as a bike that goes faster than highway speed limits or uh, an airplane that can fly a marathon in an hour. Maybe as we, we uh, come to the end of our, our time together, you could just talk a little bit about how it felt. I mean, uh, this really would make a, a pretty good movie. I don't know if the... Anybody's making the, the the Cameron Robertson Todd Record movie yet? But um, how did it feel when you actually did this? When you actually finally broke through after all these uh, efforts and and failures and and actual crashes and and all those nights when at, you know, when five o'clock was approaching, you had to take the whole damn thing apart and put it in a tractor trailer, uh, only to assemble it the next time. Um, do you remember sort of what was what the feeling was like when when you finally had your success? Uh, it was it was mind blowing. The the first thing that I thought was 
oh my god it's on the ground in one piece uh and then it was kind of the realization of it's all finally done uh, i think that looking at each of the flights and how close we'd been to failure so many times i just felt sick to my stomach uh, at the end of that flight, when it was done, we kind of all like put our heads down, laid down on the soccer field, and just were basking in having done this impossible thing, uh, and and you know, moreover, not having to rebuild the helicopter the next day. That that was kind of the biggest immediate thing. And so there was there was a documentary on uh, the flapping wing aircraft that had actually been been done up here in Canada. And I think the feeling was much the same. It was, again, pursuit of this impossible thing, all of the obstacles you've come across. And, you know, at that point, you're you're just looking at, okay, unbelievable, this has been put to bed. Sometimes your mind is moving on to the next thing, but very often it's just that this is done. You won $250,000. That sounds like a lot of money. We're almost out of time. But I'm assuming when you look at all the man hours you put in, uh, the magnitude of this project... Uh, in terms of a, a money-making endeavor, it probably would have would have been better off shoveling snow. Yeah, we certainly could have found much more boring and less exciting jobs to to make that much money in the same amount of time. Really, we were able to pay the student team. We were able to pay ourselves and the other engineers helping us on the project for some of their time, pay off the costs, and then a little bit was actually able to go to seed uh, the human-powered bike research. So uh, we had a little bit left over, but no one was going out and buying Ferraris. No, absolutely not. All right, uh, human-powered Ferrari, maybe. Cameron Robertson, thanks so much for being with us today, Chief Structural Engineer at AeroVelo, and the winners, one of the two winners of the Sikorsky Prize. We'll be back tomorrow with The Nose, our weekly culture roundtable. Still strong with his last ounce of courage to reach.